0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll read verses 9 through 15 and we'll focus on verse 13 today. Ezra chapter 10 verses 9 through 15. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them you have been unfaithful and married foreign wives according to the guilt adding to the guilt of Israel now therefore make confession to the lord of your lord god of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives then all the assembly replied with a loud voice that's right As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season and we are not able to stand in the open. Nor can this task be done in one or two days. For we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. And let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times. Together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and jaziah the son of Tikva, oppose this, with Meshulam and Shabbathai, the Levite, supporting them. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to Your Word this morning. Open our hearts to Your Spirit this morning, who would implant the Word of God within us. God, be glorified in our thoughts, in our musing. Be glorified in our prayers, in our concerns. Let us rejoice because we stand before You if we are in Christ clean, saved, and we stand before You in perfect righteousness, not of ourselves, but in the righteousness of Christ that exceeds all the righteousness of the world. We praise You because You looked down through all the ages before time was created and loved us with an everlasting love. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we are able to pray. Amen. We've been looking the last few weeks at this great assembly of the returned exiles in Jerusalem. And you'll recall that the purpose of the assembly was to bring the problem of these immoral relationships to the open and call the people repent. And as we saw last week in our look at verse 12, the response was one of nearly global repentance, where all the people gathered declared, it is our duty to obey God in this matter. Of course, I'm summarizing what they're saying since they declared their intention to obedience to what Ezra had explained to them from God's Word. But I'd like you to pay attention to the positive framing of that very statement. They didn't declare that it was simply their duty to be sorry for their sin, to feel remorse, or even to feel guilt. There were many, even today, who would put themselves through this emotional penance, regretting their sin every time they repeated it. But at the same time, having no intention of stopping their sin. In this manner these people gathered agreed that something must be done and they agreed that Ezra's declaration of the remedy was good and was right. But it is not their repentance that is most important. It is their obedience. Repentance is just the necessary first step to obedience but it cannot be all we are in Christ. We begin with repentance, but then we walk and we grow and we overcome in obedience. For many of us, if not for us ourselves, then for brothers and sisters in Christ that we love, the sin has become large in our lives. Indeed, Whether the sin is large because it has come to dominate a single life, or it is large because it is being unrepentantly practiced by a great number of people, the remedy is the same. Repent and obey, or else the sin will continue to grow. That is what sin, when left to its own fertile ground of the heart, will do. It will grow and it will take over. For many who are dealing with large sin in their lives, the greatest goal they have is not to remove it, but to hide it, to conceal it from others. We realize that God can see our sin, and we may even admit admit that that is unfortunate, but we strive with our best efforts to keep other people from discovering our sin. The early Puritan author Thomas Adams put it this way Clip the hair short, yet they will grow again, because the roots are in the skull. A tree that is but pruned, shred, topped, or lopped will sprout again. Root it up, and it shall grow no more. What is it to clip the outward appearances and to lop off? the superfluous bowels of our sin when the root is cherished in the heart. Everyone here, I suppose, knows that there are sins that are so great that they may require a great deal of work to put them away. One commentator put it this way, to eradicate sin is a task of the greatest difficulty. How hard it is to overcome a sinful habit In ourselves. Only the most patient, persistent, prayerful, and believing effort has any chance of success in such an attempt. How difficult it is to eradicate an evil, whether of belief or of practice, from the church of God. It is a task requiring the zeal of an enthusiastic reformer, the piety of a devoted saint, and the wisdom of of a profound sage. Nothing is easier than the propagation of moral evil, but its eradication is supremely difficult. What all this comes down to, as it did with the great assembly, standing in the rain in front of Ezra, is whether we will cherish our sin or cherish God. Matthew 6 24, Jesus tells us, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you've read the context of that verse, you'll recall that it ends with a statement that you cannot serve God and money. But the statement in itself is quite true without the specific application Jesus placed on it in that instance. It's supported throughout Scripture, including the following passages, Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, where Moses stands before the congregation of Israel. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. Joshua, talking to the next generation of the assembly, in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, says to the people, Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord." If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today who you'll serve. Whether the gods which your father served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 1 Kings 18.21 As Elijah stood on the mountain, and all the priests of Baal were gathered around him and all the people were waiting to see. Elijah came near to all the people in 1 Kings 18:21 and said, "How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If but if Baal, follow him." And this doesn't end with the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 6:14 through 16. Paul tells the Corinthian church do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are The temple of God. There are many others I could have chosen. Many other Scriptures. It's almost every page. But these should suffice to demonstrate the teaching of Scripture that it is impossible to love and to serve two masters no matter who they are. And in our life, particularly in those who belong to God, sin is an invasive species foreign to our new nature and hazardous to our lives. And taking a cue from Dr. Adams that I read earlier, let's look at the analogy of sin as a tree. Because if our goal in dealing with sin in our lives is to keep others from noticing it, We're saying that we will tolerate the sin as long as it doesn't become too unsightly. We'll not let its branches get too long so that they become a nuisance to our neighbors. We'll keep it well manicured and shaped to be as appealing and inoffensive as possible. If we can make it similar in its look to the other trees in other people's yards, so much the better. We just fit in all the more. But the problem with that is no matter how presentable you try to make your sin, no matter how you try to camouflage it, no matter how you justify it, no matter how vehemently you defend it, no matter how much you love it, it is a deadly invader that will poison you and those around you. Even if it looks beautiful and gives you great happiness. You do not remove a tree by pruning its branches or shaping its boughs. Indeed, pruning a tree is a way to make it grow greater, to make it grow stronger. And when we simply try to remove the unsightliness of the sin in our lives, we increase its hold on us. And we increase its danger to us. You remove a tree, even a great tree, by destroying its root. Anything short of that, and you will have that tree returning and spreading. You do not remove sin. By making it acceptable or hiding it, you remove sin by attacking the root. (coughs) All that to bring us to this point. When you're battling great sins, don't lose heart in the fight. Some sins are big, some sins are great, some sins are hard. But always make sure in your battle against sin that you are attacking the root of that sin and not its appearance. The people replied to Ezra in our passage today that they had transgressed greatly in this matter. They had rebelled greatly. They had risen up in revolt against God and His law and they had done it across the nation. But when they looked at the scope of their sin, they realized, as I'm certain Ezra and the other leaders did, that removing this sin from the people would not be easy and it certainly would not be quick. It was not the work of one or two days, nor could everything be accomplished immediately. Now we'll look at the question of why this is in just a minute. But in the case of the people, we should not see this as simply an attempted delay. I read some commentators who said they were just trying to put Ezra off. Except that's not the way this passage reads. The reason that this is not a delay, as we'll see next week, God willing, is that everything they suggested was aimed at destroying the root of this sin. They weren't justifying themselves. They weren't saying, this sin is not that bad. They weren't saying, well, not me. The proposal they brought to Ezra is not one of biding their time. Their proposal relentlessly and effectively attacks the root of their sin. There's a huge difference between trying to delay the inevitable verdict and making a suggestion to attack the sin effectively and fairly. And nothing in what they say in verses 13 and 14 indicate anything but a sincere desire to conquer a giant sin. They weren't trying to table the question until the next meeting. They were proposing a solution to obvious obstacles that would keep their repentance and obedience On track, and they made themselves at all phases accountable for the deliberate pace of those actions. That is why Ezra and the other leaders wisely chose this course of action, even though some objected to it. So, that does lead us to the question why they needed to move deliberately in clearing this sin. Why Ezra couldn't simply declare that all the questionable marriages are null and void at this moment. Dusted off his hands and walked inside. Well, there are three good reasons why they needed to do this deliberately. The first is that they needed to make sure sin existed so that they could be right. As I've often reminded you before, this question was not a matter of racial purity. It never was. So determining whether a man was guilty of harboring an idolatrous wife wasn't as simple as seeing if she was of the Samaritan or the other people of the land. They couldn't just look at her and say, well, yes, she's a foreigner, so she has to go. The judgment was not about what people she was from. It was about what God she served. That was always the only question. If she served Yahweh, she was as welcome into God's people as Ruth and as Rahab. If she served other gods, she was as unwelcome as Jezebel. If she served Yahweh, that marriage would persist with God's blessing. If she served other gods, that living arrangement must be dissolved or the entire family cast out from God's people. Additionally, they must guard against those who might out of greed or malice make false witness against others. Accusing them of having an illegitimate marriage. It is sad, but we all know that sometimes the sworn testimony of someone is not pure or well-intentioned. It can be a a guess. It could even be gossip. Well, I heard from such and such. Who heard it from such and such? Often, it deals with feelings and not facts. And so the judges in this matter would, be ha- would have to be quite diligent in rebutting these false accusations so that they could be right in the matter. Because it is easy to swing the pendulum to the other extreme. And that would have been just as sinful as these marriages. The second reason that they needed to move deliberately, is that they needed to understand the extent of the sin so that they could be fair. Relations like this cause all manner of complications. You could ask yourself, for example, a man had a child with the idolater. Would the child be put out of the congregation of Israel? What if that child was full grown and followed Yahweh alone? Had the idolatrous spouse converted after they had begun to live together? Does the idolatrous spouse claim to follow Yahweh, but does not live in that way? All these complicating and extenuating facts needed to be judged and be decided, and all those judgments needed to be based on what God commands. The third reason they needed to move deliberately is they needed to prescribe the right remedies to keep the sin from returning. They weren't simply pruning the branches. When you are dealing with someone's life and family, you must not be wrong. Likewise, when you're going after a great sin, you must not be incomplete. And so the judgments were, as we see in the verses following, The rest of Ezra, they were quite narrow in their effects, but sufficient in their attack on this sin. There are people in that list that we see at the end of Ezra from every level in society, from priests and leaders down to the smallest in a family clan. And each must be called to repentance and obedience individually. And they must accomplish that repentance and obedience individually. Only then can the body of believers be freed from the sin. In asking these questions and making these judgments, they were following a pattern later described throughout the New Testament in dealing with sin in the body whether we look at Matthew 18 in Jesus' teaching or the narrower application by Paul in 1 Timothy or in Titus or in the Corinthians, we are given example and command for when we must resort to spiritual judgment amongst ourselves. But believer, please understand this. Church discipline is not the first choice of the faithful. It is the last effort to bring someone to repentance. The greatest testimony is not that God has brought me out of a great sin. The greatest testimony is that God has led me away from great sin and I have followed Him. That is the testimony that I pray for everyone in here that you may have have grand examples of what God has freed you from in the past, and by all means proclaim them to God's glory. He may have freed you from drugs or alcohol or from all kinds of dissipation in this world. Proclaim it, that you have been freed from it to the glory of God. But brothers and sisters, live your life now in such a way that your testimony will be centered on the obedience the Holy Spirit has built into you because of your love for God and His love for you. Never go back to that dissipation of the world. Never allow yourself to need a testimony of putting away a great sin. Let the Spirit lead you away from temptation. Let the Spirit deliver you from evil. If there's a great sin in your life right now, and that is possible, repent and work relentlessly at destroying its root in your life. Don't look at hiding it. Don't look at making it acceptable. Don't work at making it look like other people's sin. Attack the root of it. Uproot it. And remove it from your life. Kill it. Burn it. Remove it with every tool at your disposal. I read this week a quote by Spurgeon it probably says it much more eloquently than I can. How grand a thing to get a passion down and hold it by the throat, strangling it despite its struggles. It is a fine work to hang up some old sin as an accursed thing before the Lord just as they hung up the Canaanitish kings before the face of the sun. Or if you cannot quite kill the lust, it is honorable work to roll a great stone at the cave's mouth and shut in the wretches until the evening comes when they shall meet their doom. It is a joyous thing when by God's grace under temptation you were kept from falling as you did on a former occasion. And so were made conquerors over a weakness which was your curse in past years. It is a noble thing to be made strong through the blood of the Lamb so as to overcome sin. Let's pray. Our Father, You have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. You have given us Your Spirit to guide us in the way to lead us, to implant Your Word within us, to call us to repentance, even when we love the sin. God, I pray that You would take the sin in our lives and make it putrid to us. When we look at the sin, we're disgusted by it. We recognize the rotting, and the decaying nature of it. We see the poison that will lead us to death. As sin inevitably does. There is no temptation on earth. That has more value than you. You are all glorious you have loved us from the very beginning you have called us to come to yourself and the only thing you are saving us from is death and decay and judgment Show us each day the true face of the sin we said we loved. The sin that we tried to make so pretty. And bring us to repentance to your glory alone. Let us obey You in all things. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ who came to take away the sins of the world that we pray. Amen.